I am exceedingly thankful for this church family. I like to, uh, and I appreciate those amens, and um, I know that many of us are just feel very grateful to be a part of this family. Uh, I certainly do, and I like to share that with you uh, from time to time. I just think about, um, I think about all of the activities that have just happened this weekend. Uh, we had a meeting before our worship tonight with our adult Sunday school leaders to talk about making improvements to our classes. Uh, I know Jane had a leader, uh, uh, excuse me, a meeting. It's been a long day. Sundays are also long days. Uh, for me, but um, Jane had a meeting with all our uh, kids, class, teachers to talk about the upcoming quarter. There was a men's prayer breakfast yesterday morning for all the men of our congregation. Alex led a group of teenagers and some dads out to uh, Fall Creek Falls for a camp out, and they had a great time. So many opportunities for involvement and fellowship and growing in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. We need to remember how blessed we are here. Uh, we need to thank God for blessing us with this congregation. Uh, but we never need to w- want to keep those blessings to ourselves. That should motivate us to share what we have with others. And so we not only need to thank God for blessing us with this congregation, we need to ask God to continue to use this congregation to be a light to this community and to the world. And we need to pray that God would keep the evil one at bay. And we need to pray that God would continue to bind us together in love and harmony and unity so that we can continue serving God uh, in this place and in this county. So I just wanted to, as I got up here tonight, remind myself and remind all of you that we are very blessed and we ought to be thankful. Uh, Lauren and I, having been here over 10 years, we just love it here. We appreciate your love for us. We love you. And we're just so happy that we can serve God in this place with these wonderful people. Um, when I was in middle school, I think it was eighth grade, I had a very eccentric history teacher, probably one of the most interesting teachers that I ever had in my school career. His name was Mr. Gerskin. And he walked with a limp. He carried this very ornate cane. It had like a brass handle on it that was carved into some sort of animal head figure. Uh, he had a big handlebar, handlebar mustache. And he wore the most colorful flamboyant ties that you can imagine. And uh, I said to him, oh, this is just going to give you insight into the kind of kid that I was, but... Multiple times I said, Mr. Gerskin, I really just love your ties. And uh, towards the end of the semester, he came in one day and he had a, like a plastic sack from a grocery store with like 10 of his ties in there. And he said, here, Horton, enjoy. And uh, so I was so excited I could take some of these ties home. And uh, I, they were, you know, saturated with smoke smell and... Um, I think I might still have one or two in my closet. And my wife right now is thinking, of course you do. Of course you still have one of those old ties. But Mr. Gerskin was not just an interesting character, an eccentric teacher. He was a good teacher. And he, uh, he was arresting. Uh, he was engaging. He was very interesting to listen to. And what made him so interesting, it, it, this was his whole approach to teaching history. He would say, here's what you've heard, and here's what really happened. 
he was like a, I don't know what you'd call him, and I, I guess I need to maybe go back and look at what he taught and make sure he was actually telling us the truth. But, you know, he'd say, you've heard this about Paul Revere, but I'm going to tell you the real story. Or you've heard this about the founding fathers or about this Civil War general, but here's what really happened. And that's what made it so interesting. He would sort of deconstruct what you thought you knew and share something brand new with you. Well, tonight I want to pull a Mr. Gerskin on you as we begin. And I want to say this. You've heard it this way. Saul had a sudden conversion experience. Out of the blue, out of thin air. Uh, He was not this way, and all of a sudden, without any warning, he suddenly was a believer. That's what we've heard. And there's a little bit of truth to that, because we do know about Saul, who was also called Paul, about his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. There was a suddenness to it. But that's not the full story. That's what you've heard. But here's what really happened. It was actually a long process. The climax of which happened on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to Paul in the blinding light and spoke to him. But God had been preparing him for that moment for a long time. It was more of a process than we often think. His conversion. And how do we know that? Well, we know that from Acts chapter 26. And why don't you go ahead and grab a Bible. We're going to start in Acts chapter 26. And tonight, we're going to revisit some themes that we, that we looked at this morning as we talked about God pursuing us and being so relentless in His pursuit that He was willing to redeem us by the blood of Jesus. In Acts chapter 26, we're going to look at verse 14, but Paul here is standing trial, and he, he repeats his conversion experience. He tells the story again. And we get some details this time around that we have not seen before. And one of, them, one of them comes in verse 14. Paul says, we had all fallen to the ground. This is on the road. You know, he's going up there to arrest more Christians and to take them back to Jerusalem to put them on trial and to imprison them. He's heading to Damascus. Jesus appears. He says, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And look at what comes next. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And what that tells us is God had been He'd been pricking his heart. He'd been working on him up to this moment. And Saul had been resisting. He'd been going against the grain. He'd been kicking against the goads, is the phrase that we see in the Scripture. A goad was a spiked stick for driving cattle. It was like a spur. And so what Jesus says here is, I, I have been pricking at your heart. I've been prodding you. I've been goading, spurring you. And you've You've been trying to resist. You've been trying to run in the opposite direction. It's getting hard for you. And it's becoming futile. And, and of course, we see that that's the case when Jesus appears. It's a done deal at that point. But this is not, this is not as sudden as we think. Um, God's been working on Paul. He's been goading him. And it has become increasingly hard for Paul to kick against The goats. He'd been prodded and pricked and pursued by Jesus Christ. As we called him this morning, the hound of heaven. 
And we can speculate how, we don't know for sure, but we can speculate, speculate how Jesus was goading Paul. I think it's possible Jesus was goading Paul in his mind. Consciously, we know that Paul rejected or that Saul rejected Jesus. Uh, he was very knowledgeable of the law. He was a very devout Jew. He'd been trained under Gamaliel, the, one of the most well-known rabbis in the first century. And he was convinced, at least consciously, that Jesus was not the Messiah. He was not the Christ, not the anointed one. And probably for many reasons. For one, Jesus was rejected by his own people. He died a shameful death on the cross, which in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, which Paul knew exceptionally well, Moses says that anybody who dies on a tree is is cursed by God. And so, surely, Jesus cannot be the Christ because of the way in which he died. And yet, I wonder if Paul, in the back of his mind, is also considering some other things about Jesus. The way that he taught with authority. All of the miracles and the healings that he heard, that he performed. His love and his compassion for the poor. And maybe all those reports about all the people who had seen Jesus after his death, who said that they saw him with their own eyes, that some of them even said they dined with him. And so Paul is thinking in the back of his mind, he can't admit it to anybody else because on the outside... He is so zealous and he, he's so certain that Jesus can't be the Christ, that he's persecuting Christians. But in the back of his mind, Jesus is goading him. He's pricking at his mind and at his heart. And maybe Paul is starting to think, maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus, this humble man from Nazareth, maybe he actually is the Christ. And then here's another way that Jesus might have been goading Paul. He might have been goading him in his memory. Do you remember the first time that Saul, and I'm using these interchangeably here, uh, Saul is Paul and Paul is Saul, but do you remember the first time that we see this man on the pages of Scripture? He's there at the final words and the death of Stephen. And he's consenting to Stephen's, this early Christian's, stoning. And the people who pick up the rocks to throw at this man, they lay their coats and their garments at Saul's feet. And Saul must vividly remember this scene. Before his speech began, Stephen's face looking like the face of an angel. That's what Acts says. Stephen's words in his final sermon, the way that Stephen looked up to heaven right before he died, and he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And maybe Saul is thinking, boy, these Christians like Stephen, their courage is amazing. That they believe this so, so wholeheartedly that, that Jesus really was who he said he was and that he died for the sins of humanity and he was raised again. These Christians believe that so wholeheartedly that they're willing to, they're willing to go to their graves for it. They're willing to be put to death. Maybe that's another way that Jesus is goading Saul in his memory, thinking about that experience with Stephen and the things that he said and the, and the events that played out before his very eyes. And maybe also he's, he's goading his mind. 
And Saul is beginning to think about all of... And one thing I didn't say earlier was all of the ways in which Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures and all of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus and in His ministry. Saul knew all about Him because he knew the law better than anybody else or as good as anyone else. And he's beginning to think, maybe Jesus really is the Christ. So even before the road to Damascus experience, God has been at work in Saul's heart. He's been pursuing Saul. He's been poking and prodding. And now on that road, Saul becomes a true believer. Now in our lives, we should seek to understand how God is pursuing us. And we talked a little bit about that this morning. But tonight, I want us to think about the people outside these walls, the people in our community, in our culture, uh, who don't know the Lord and who have not devoted their life to Him. I want us to think about how we can help them understand how God is pursuing them. Because we talked about this morning how God, the Bible can be seen as a story of how God has been in pursuit of His people from, from the rebellion, from the fall, from in the garden when Adam and Eve took of that fruit and ate it. He has been pursuing a relationship with all humanity since that time. How can we help them to know that? To realize that, to see that. Well, I've got a few examples, just a few. I mean, there's several. But here's one that we can help bring to, to people's attention. God pursues us, I believe, by placing a sense of his existence in the heart of every human. I think for anybody to deny the existence of God is really kicking against the goats. Because I believe that God has placed within every human a sense that there is something greater. There is a divine cause, a reason that everything exists out there. I think we, we intuit this. All humans do. And those who are the most, um, uh, you know, the, the most, uh, oh, I'm looking for a word here. I'm thinking of atheists who are, who are so... Um, convinced of their position and uh, who work so hard to bring other people into their camp, they're really kicking against the goads here. They're really working hard to resist something that God has placed within us all, which is a sense that there's something greater. There's a reason that, that everything is here. There is a divine being in the heavens. You know, we talk a lot about atheists and the most vocal among them, but a 2007 study showed that only 5% of American adults say that they don't believe in God. So that leaves 95% of the population of this country who at least believe that there's a divine being out there. Well, that's a good starting point for people like us who want to share the message of the gospel with others. Which is precisely what Paul wanted to do when he went to Athens and this is a text that we talked about in some of our Sunday school classes this morning. I want to revisit a couple verses. Uh, so we're going to rewind in the book of Acts to chapter 17, if you've got your Bible. Acts 17. When Paul gets into Athens, he knows about the culture. He knows that it is a place of uh, learning, that it is a culture in which People were always searching for the latest, greatest way of thinking or philosophy. 
And he also sees when he gets into town that the city is replete with idols, just filled to the brim with them. All kinds of, every kind of idol you can imagine. Every sort of false god under the sun is in Athens. And it upsets him, it disturbs him. So look what he does when he is speaking in a very public place to probably a very large crowd of mostly heathen people, what we would call them, non-Jews, people who were polytheists who embraced many gods. So Paul's got to find a way to, to get them to understand the gospel without, without the foundation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is what he did in many other places when he's, when he's preaching to Jews. But now he's preaching to Gentiles. How in the world is he going to help them to understand who God is and then who Jesus is? Look at what he does in verse 17, uh, verse 23. He says, well, let's back up verse 22. He says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So we talked about in our class this morning. Hey, that's a pretty good way to begin a sermon. He begins with a compliment. He commends them. He finds something good about their culture. And he says, good job. You are religious. I can see that. Look at where he goes next. Verse 23. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And so they had altars to all sorts of named gods, but they think, just so we don't leave any of them out, just so all our bases are covered, just so we're blessed by all the deities, let's do one to the unnamed God. Or to the unknown God. And listen to what Paul says. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So in other words, you sense that there is a deity, a divine being out there that you don't know quite who it is yet. I'm here to tell you exactly who it is because that divine being has made his will known to man. He's revealed himself. And so let me define him for you. Let me make the unknown known. Paul says to these people, you sense in your heart that there is a God. And people have not changed all that much. Most people, I would say all people, in their heart know that there's a God. That there's a divine being out there. And if we can somehow help them to see that God is pursuing them by placing that knowledge in their heart. We'll be well on our way to teaching them the gospel. Here's something else. I, another way that God is pursuing us, and especially we're thinking about how God is pursuing those who have not yet confessed faith in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ. He pursues by providing a conscience that can discern right and wrong. That's something else that we all have. A conscience. Now, we know from the Scriptures that our consciences can be, to use the language, seared as a hot iron. If we continue to rebel against God and do things that uh, are not in keeping with His will, our consciences can be dulled. They can be damaged from years of sinful living. But we also alternatively believe that our consciences can be shaped and fashioned and molded by God, by His Spirit, by the study of His Word, to where they are a reliable source of decision-making. When we've got a big decision to make, we can actually trust our consciences as those who are believers, as those who are, are, are trying to do what is in God's Word. And God has blessed everybody with 
a conscience. But not only that, in addition to being able to know right from wrong, an inclination to do that which is right, a desire to do not the bad thing, but the good thing. And that very inclination within people is proof that there is a God. Proof of God's existence. And I think it's proof, if we can help people to see it, that God is in pursuit of everyone. C.S. Lewis said this about, along these lines. He said, we know that men find themselves under a moral law which they did not make and they cannot quite forget even when they try and which they know they ought to obey. It's built into everybody. Now why is that there if not for God? Who put that there if not God? This moral law that is within us, inherent to our being, we can't quite get it out of our mind. We didn't make it up, and we know we ought to obey it. And if you don't believe that, listen to this scenario. Imagine that you're sitting on a beach and you hear the cries of a drowning child from the ocean. Now, in that moment, you probably feel two desires. One is a desire to give help. But the other is a desire to stay safe. Two competing desires when you witness that. But, and this also comes from from C.S. Lewis, adapted a little bit. But you will find inside you, in addition to those two impulses, a third thing which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help. So on the one hand, you think uh, you want to give help. On the other hand, you think you want to stay safe. But there's something else at work, and that something is telling you that you should help. That you should suppress the voice that's telling you to stay safe and you should go into that water after that drowning child. Now the thing that judges between these two instincts that decides which should be encouraged cannot itself be either of them. That third thing is what we might call a moral obligation. Something that is within every human on the face of this planet. Now where did that come from? And so this conscience that we have and this desire to do right over wrong, that is proof that God is after us, that he's in pursuit. And here's one more. He pursues us also by instilling a desire within us to live for a higher purpose. Everybody wants to live for a reason that sort of transcends just their average everyday life. They're they're looking for some purpose, some reason for existence, some reason that you know they were made and that's given by God and that's proof that God is in pursuit of us and in all these ways and more God is seeking after us seeking a relationship but we can't stop by talking about God's pursuit of us as you know there is more to the story and so let's go back to Athens with Paul and let's look at Acts 17 27 uh, a little bit later In the text, he says that God has made everybody so that they may seek him in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from any of us. So in other words, God is seeking us 
But Paul says here in this verse, we must also seek Him. And he also says, He is not far from any of us. And Paul knows about seeking God. He knows about being sought by God, as we've seen. But he knows about seeking God. I think about how after his conversion, he appears in a couple stories, and then he goes back to his hometown of Tarsus. And he stays there uh, in Acts chapter 9, verse 30, is when he goes back. He stays there, if my math is correct, about eight years. And the spotlight of, of the Scriptures shifts away from Paul uh, and back onto Peter and some of the other apostles. We don't know what he's doing. That's a chapter in Paul's life that is a big question mark for us. What is Paul up to for those eight years after his conversion, but before he's brought back onto the scene and begins his missionary journeys? Well, surely he's preaching. I bet he's ministering. I bet he's telling people about Jesus up in his hometown. But you know what I also bet he was doing? I bet he was pouring over the Scriptures again. I bet he was seeing how the Scriptures find their fulfillment and their completion in the man and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I bet after being sought by God, he was seeking God again himself. Now, of course, I'm speculating. But as we observe Paul's ministry and the way that he could uh, so artfully and beautifully preach sermons that connected the Old Testament with the arrival of Jesus, it makes sense to me to believe that when he went back to Tarsus, that he was seeking after God and, and, and immersing himself anew in the Scriptures that had been totally refashioned for him because of Jesus Christ. So Paul knew what it was like to be pursued by God, but he also knew what it was like to pursue God and His will. And people must know of course, how God is pursuing them, but they also must know that's not enough. That they must seek after God. You see, it's not enough to know that there is a God. A lot of people believe there is a God. And that's a good starting place, but that's not a good ending place. It's not enough. We must come to know the one true and living God. The God of Israel, who sent His Son Jesus to redeem all humanity. That's the God, the personal God that we must come to know and honor. And that's what Paul does in Acts 17 in Athens. He says, you know there's a God out there. You don't know who He is. Let me make Him known to you. And he says this in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then he gets into Jesus. And then he gets into the resurrection. And then he gets into the need for repentance. And then he talks about the judgment day. So Paul starts by talking about their knowledge deep within themselves that there's a God. And then he says, let me tell you about this God. Let me tell you exactly who he is. So it's not enough to just know there is one. We've got to help people come to know who He is. And it's not enough to just know right from wrong and even to recognize that you have a desire within you to do that which is right over that which is wrong. We must do right in order to please God and to live into our full potential to become the people we were made to be. When we come to realize that it's best for us here and for all eternity to follow God's will, 
we have come to know that God's will is best. And it's not enough to know that I should live for a higher purpose. We must come to follow that higher purpose, which is to glorify God and enjoy His presence forever. Now, God wants to use us as His people to help others outside these walls see how God has been pursuing them. To help them to realize that God has been seeking after them in order to share a relationship with them. But we must not stop there. Because God also wants to use us to inspire people to pursue God and to seek after Him and His will. Maybe you've been resisting God's pursuit. Maybe you've been kicking against the goads. And maybe your time of resistance uh, needs to be over. I hope that it will be over tonight. I hope that God will get through to your heart just like He did Paul on that road to Damascus. It's accurate to say, as James does, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's James chapter 4, verse 8. It is also accurate to say, draw near to God. He's been drawing near to you throughout your life. Resist Him no longer. Say yes to Jesus tonight, your Lord and Savior, who so desperately wants you to have a home forever in God's presence. Would you do that right now as we stand and sing?